Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this week. May we ask that your spirit will join us, fill us with your love, and we draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And a couple of announcements as we get started this morning. For those who don't know, we do have a free app for Common Reason Ministries for either the iOS, which is iPhones, or Android. Uh, it's free. Just download it, and you have access to various uh, stuff from our website. And if you don't get our notes already, our notes are available through that app, and so you don't even have to get on your computer if you get the app. And in our, our notes for each class each week, we put those online, so they'll be available for you. Last week, we talked about... If you remember last week, one of the things that came up was the yoke that yokes us together with Christ. And we talked about that idea of a, of a yoke as something that shares a burden and we team up together with Christ. And one of our online listeners emailed me this week, Kent Johnson, and uh, he emailed me this quotation from the book, The Desire of Ages, page 329. I thought it was quite good. It says, take my yoke upon you, Jesus said. The yoke is an instrument of service. Cattle are yoked for labor, and the yoke is essential that they may be labor effectively. By this illustration, Christ teaches that we are called to service as long as life shall last. We are to take up his yoke that we may be co-workers with him. Now, get, get what the yoke is. It's going to define the yoke force. The yoke that binds to service is the law of God, the great law of love revealed in Eden. Isn't that good? That's the yoke, the law of love. See? And this is what, of course, we're trying to help people understand in the class here. All right, this week we're doing lesson number seven, Living Like Christ in the uh, quarterly the teachings of Jesus. And the memory text for this week is from John thirteen thirty four: A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And how would you describe that love looks like? Other-centered. Other-centered. Interested in others. Of course, Jesus of Nazareth is the embodiment. And then how does that love look today, functionally? Is there a checklist for love? Why not? Why is there not a checklist for love? Too long and too complicated. Too long and too complicated. Uh, Because love, as you said, is other-centered, does what's best, and what's best differs from situation to situation, doesn't it? And person to person. And person to person. Uh, Therefore, love in one place may turn the other cheek. But in another place, it may not turn the other cheek. Example, if a parent has an unruly six-year-old, and that unruly six-year-old has a temper tantrum and hits his mother, should the mother turn the other cheek? His. His. She said his. (laughs) Yes, because... uh, Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But isn't it true? If you love the child, you're not going to let the child begin beating up on mother. That would actually uh, take the child down a very unruly character and be very destructive. It's not an act of love to turn the other cheek in that circumstance. So you can't have a checklist, turn the other cheek, that works in, in, in every circumstance. Our natural hearts do not want to love. We want to be loved, to be admired, to be adored, to be, to be the center, to be the one praised, to be the one comforted, held, caressed, watched over, protected, delivered, hugged, kissed. But we don't naturally want to put ourselves out for another, especially someone who's wronged us. That is not natural, is it? It is only as we experience God's love in our heart, which takes away our fears and insecurities, 
that we stop seeking to get for ourselves and start actually giving. And this is what uh, God meant to the woman at the well, or Christ meant to the woman at the well, when he said, if you ask for me, I'd give you the living water, it would well up inside you and overflow to many. He's talking about the living water. If you understand water, physiologically, is an essential uh, element for life. It brings life. It keeps us alive. In a desert society, it was very, very clear, water brought life. And in our understanding of God's universe, what's the water of life, the elixir of life? It's love. Love which comes from God and fills our hearts, takes away fear and insecurity, flows out to many, and love is only love if you give it away. If you give it away. That's what love is. Yeah. Second paragraph. Why then did Jesus say, a new commandment I give you? The newness of Jesus' instruction was in that it had a new measure, as I have loved you. Before the incarnation of Christ, men did not have a full manifestation of God's love. Now, through his selfless life and death, Jesus demonstrates the real, de- the real and deepest meaning of love. So the question, why did humans not have a good understanding of God's love before the incarnation of Christ? And I would say humans, maybe even angels didn't have a good understanding either. Why? Do we have an understanding of why that was? Was God restrictive? Was God secretive? Was he holding back information? Did Enoch have a good understanding of God's ways and methods of principle? Yeah, I think Enoch may have understood it. How about the rest of humanity? Well, they understood a portion of it. They didn't realize, I think, you know, how far he would go. Uh, they were amazed that though we rebelled against him, you know, how far would he go to rescue this one tiny dot in the universe, these, this little creation somewhere? And uh, I think... You know, he never had the opportunity to demonstrate that before because it didn't have, uh, it hadn't occurred before. So since the cross then, everyone on planet Earth has a very clear understanding of God's character of love because we've had it demonstrated by Christ now, right? And even that's been distorted. Okay. So think, think, think with me. Since the cross, has humanity embraced God's character of love and presented accurately God's character of love? When we think about the remnant people of Revelation, they're described as having the testimony of Jesus, which is what? Uh, King James Bible says in uh, Revelation 19, the, the uh, testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's the way it says it in that version. Other versions say that this, uh, the um, testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of the prophets, or the spirit which inspired the prophets? I would say it'd be accurately being able to speak God's mind. I mean, that's what he is. And, and reveal who he is by words are used to convey thoughts and uh, beliefs. And Jesus. Do <clears throat> so we have a traditional idea in our mind about what this text means, testimony of Jesus? And that traditional idea is one of the things that obstructs us. Did the Jews have traditional ideas in their mind of what God was like, that when Christ came, those traditional ideas prevented them from actually seeing God? Yes. We have a traditional idea on this text in Revelation. The spirit of prophecy means red leather books. Books bound with red leather. That's what we think it means. It's not what it means. 
It means straightforward what it is. Testimony of Jesus. What testimony did Jesus give? And it's the same testimony that was given by the Spirit that inspired the prophets. The prophets gave, this is why it says in Hebrews that God spoke to us in many places in, in times past through the prophets and so forth, right? About what? About his, but now he speaks to us through his Son. The message and the testimony of Jesus and the prophets are the same testimony. And it's the testimony primarily about the character of God. This is the testimony of Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. So if you want to be part of the remnant people, you have to give the same testimony about God that Jesus gave. If you don't give that testimony about God, you're not part of the remnant, regardless of which day you worship on. So... As we look at this testimony of Jesus that Jesus gave, and we think about that, and we then think of the Father in heaven, and we present our revelation message, do we present a God who forgives or who punishes? When Jesus was being murdered, because Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father, when Jesus was being murdered at the cross, did he forgive? Yes. Do we see the Father at the cross? Yes. Is that the Father forgiving? Do we see the same character? Is God two-faced? When he returns in, at the second coming, or the third coming after a thousand years, it doesn't matter which one you, you want to pick, but in the future when he comes, will he have a different character than Jesus revealed 2,000 years ago? Or will he have the same character that Jesus revealed? He will come with a character that is love, or will he come with something else? A character of vengeance and some call justice. Well, here's what Louis Farrakhan thinks. Louis Farrakhan uh, gave a spe- uh, presentation in March 2006, and this is what he said about the second coming. He says, uh, when we, we are living at the time that was described by Jesus in these words. If those days were not shortened for the elect's sake, no flesh would be saved. We know that we have now entered that period when we witnessed a tsunami killing over 2,000 people in Asia, an earthquake in Pakistan, storms raging throughout America, fire on one side, water on the other, snow, cold, ice in between. At a town hall meeting in New Orleans, I pointed out the high black-on-black crime rate, rebellion against the will and law of God, and the love of partying and acting foolish that prevails in the city. I asked them if they did not think that Allah, God, would handle this city as he did the two ancient cities that lived in rebellion. I told them that Allah, God, brought a punishment to America, but he also brought a punishment to black people. And that punishment is going to spread. There will be many more disasters that we are not prepared for in this country. This country glories in its cities and skyscrapers, but Allah is going to bring them down. We are going to know that he is God. The Bible says that in his second coming, he will have a sword dripping with blood in his hand. He will not come back to teach. He will come back to kill the enemies of his teaching and set up a new government. Do you think this is much different than what you can get in a Revelation seminar? You understand, they may not use the graphic language, but it's much what they say in the Revelation seminar. He's coming back to save the saved, but he's coming back to kill the wicked. Is that what Jesus revealed? Is this the God you worship, the one that Louis Farrakhan worships? Many Christians do. Would you treat your unruly children like this? Note how Louis Farrakhan presents the troubles at the end of time, coming from God, inflicted 
from his hand with a bloody sword. He's inflicting this, this pain and suffering and torment and torture and plagues and so forth. Here's what Ellen White actually wrote regarding the same time in the future. This is out of manuscript release, page 14, uh, volume 14, page 3. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been the object of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress, and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down in great wrath. He is at work, he knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. Now wait a second, we have one version that is teaching that God is the source of all this torment-inflicted storms, killing We have another version that says, wait, God sends his restraining powers to hold back the evil one from destroying. And in the end of time, when we choose rebelliously to to separate ourselves from God, he gives us the freedom and lets us go, and then Satan has more freedom to injure. Is there any Bible support for the second view? Reference for that again. That was Manuscript Release, volume 14, page 3. Here's a Bible support, if you want a Bible support for the second view. Revelation 7, 1 through 3. After this, I saw four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or any tree. Notice what they're doing. What are they doing? What's their function? What's their action, these angels? They're holding back to prevent. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel coming from the east having the seal of the living God. He called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees or put, until we put the seal on the forehead of the servants of our God. Now, how, what, are, what are they actively doing in verse 1? Holding, Holding back. And what are they described as having the power to do in verse 2? Destroy. Destroy the land and the sea. To harm the land. And the, so how do you think they will do their harm? By getting out of the way and letting go. Exactly what Ellen White described, not what Louis Farrakhan described. And why do they let go? Why would these angels let go? What is the causation of their letting go? We push the Holy Spirit away. Yes, expand on that. Well, the more and more people that reject the Holy Spirit and don't allow God in their lives, the more he can't be here. The the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth is where? The Spirit Temple. Know ye not that ye are a temple, the Spirit of God, and God dwells in you by his Spirit? We are the dwelling place. Does God force his way into hearts and minds? No. No. So do we have the freedom to close our hearts and minds to the Spirit? And as the Spirit is withdrawn and humans willfully choose to step out of God's care, God gradually withdraws his protective hand and Satan gets more and more power on the earth. This is what's happening. It's our choice that is directing us as human beings. We're being led down this this path of, of, of... Spiritual slumber and sleep, false security with false theologies. Is God the source of inflicted punishment or or forgiveness? In 2007, I was at a speaker's conference in Nashville, 
and part of the conference, we broke up into small groups. In one of the small groups, there was a guy, a, a, a man, maybe you've heard of him, his name's Kent Whitaker. In 2003, December 2003, he, his wife, and two sons, Kevin and Bart, went out to dinner to celebrate Bart's upcoming college graduation. And at dinner, they gave Bart a $4,000 Rolex as a graduation gift from college. Um, they drove home. As they drove home, Kevin, the younger brother, drove home. And as they approached the house, Bart and got out and walked to the house. Bart turned back to get his cell phone. And if you want the entire story, the entire story is in the notes. As they entered the house, a masked gunman shot and killed Kevin, Kent's wife, and shot Kent in the chest as he stepped into the doorway, but Kent survived. As it, as it turned out, Bart had arranged with a longtime friend to have his family shot and killed so he could inherit the family money. Bart was arrested, put on trial for murder, and the prosecutor seeking the death penalty. If you were Kent, and this was your son, who had arranged your murder, and yet you survived, but did murder your other son and wife, how would you respond? I met and talked with Kent, I will tell you, but seriously, I want you to ponder that. How would you respond? Is everybody sleeping? I would think that my son certainly didn't understand how much I cared about him. So would you support the prosecutor in seeking the death penalty? Yes, right here. As a human, I personally will think that this son is beyond repair. And therefore, I would submit to the normal justice we think about. Okay, other thoughts? I can tell you what Kent did. Kent, Kent publicly forgave his son and publicly asked the prosecutor not to seek the death penalty for his son, but the prosecutor sought the death penalty anyway, and Bart was found guilty and sentenced to death, and he still sits on death row today, 2014, where Kent visits him every week. And the more recent updates from 2007, when all this happened... Um, when, when I met and talked with Kent, is that his son has given his heart to the Lord and been redeemed. Amen. And Kent said that while he has lost his wife and son on this earth, he knows he will see them in heaven, and he wanted his son to be redeemed from what he did as well and be in heaven with them as well. Now, do you think God loves us less then Kent loves his son. Is God less forgiving of us than Kent, than a human father of his son? Does this mean that God forgives everyone? Yes. yes. Does this mean everyone is saved? No. no. Why not? Did, did Christ forgive those who put him on the cross? Yes. Did that make them his friends? Or were they still his enemy in heart and character? Understand, salvation is not about getting God to forgive. Salvation is about getting sinners to repent and trust God. Well said. God comes to the equation. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God comes to the equation on our side. Always on our side. But we come to the equation, enmity against him, 
enemies of his. We are the ones who are out of step and out of harmony, and we are the ones who have to be changed to be put back in harmony. Salvation is actually healing, renewal, transformation of the character of the one being saved, not simple forgiveness. Salvation is not about getting God to forgive. As God comes with that attitude already, it's about getting sinners to trust God and allow him to heal them and restore them. And our trust is undermined by satanic views of God, taught from many religions of the world, including Christianity. When we present God as a severe judge who is the source of inflicted pain and death to the unrepentant, when we present the sin problem as a legal problem which ends up in a heavenly court for God to judge, we misrepresent God as a dictator, his law being like human law and undermine trust. The metaphor I used before is the example of the heroin addict who has been using dirty needles and is now sick with infection. He's breaking the laws of health, design law, God's design for the way life is to operate. He's also breaking the laws of our land. Does he want to be taken before the local magistrate and have his misdeeds be presented before the magistrate and have the magistrate present uh, uh, conclusion or judgment on him and sentence on him? Does he want to do that? But does he want to go to the doctor and have the doctor examine him and have all the history of what he's done presented to the doctor, have the doctor judge him, we call that a diagnosis, and the doctor sentences, we call that a therapeutic treatment remedy. Does he want that? Yes. When we present God as this judge, we obstruct people from coming to him. When we present him as the designer, the creator of the universe who wants to heal and restore, we open the way for people to come to him. Last night, Christy and I were going through our hymn book and came across a song entitled, The Judgment Has Set. And I thought, I have to read these words. It's on page 416 for, for those who would like to look it up. Here are the words. The judgment has set, the books have been opened. How shall we stand in that great day? When every thought and word and action, God the righteous judge shall weigh. How shall we, this is the refrain, how shall we stand in that great day? How shall we stand in that great day? Shall we be found before him wanting or with all our sins washed away? The work is begun with those who are sleeping, soon the living here to be tried. Out of the books of God's remembrance, his decision to abide. Oh, how shall we stand that moment of searching when all our sins those books reveal? When from that court each case decided shall be granted no appeal. Does that just warm you? Pardon? Yeah, have the offering now, yeah. Uh, These representations of God, no wonder they get into our thinking and put these barriers up from people. It's gross. On a radio show this week, Christian Radio, I heard a preacher preaching about the future judgment and how we all stand before the judgment seat of God and all will have their cases decided. And this entire way of thinking is based on a false understanding of God's law. It presents God as a Roman dictator and his law as an imposed set of rules and he must set in judgment over that. And, and the first angel message of Revelation is to call us back to, to present him as the creator, him who made the heavens, the earth. The designer, his laws are the protocols upon which life is constructed. Life cannot exist out of harmony with his design. It's not possible. And this is why we are called to repentance, to transformation, so we can be recreated and put back in harmony with the way life is built to operate. On Tuesday on my way home, I was listening to another Christian radio show when the host said that the sinners cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. But we should be thankful because when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness, but sees the perfect life of his son. Thus, he loves us as much as his son because Jesus died to pay our penalty. 
This is, this is ubiquitous out there, these distortions. And do you hear the error in thinking with that? It could be so beautiful if he simply taught reality that the Father doesn't see our sinfulness when he looks at us because we have been renewed by the Spirit to be partakers of the divine nature and it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I have a new heart and right spirit. The law has been written in the inner man. I've actually been changed. That's why. It could be so beautiful. That's why he doesn't see the wickedness because my heart loves him and trusts him now. Yes? You can go back to the, the first, first sentence. Right? God cannot stand to be... Our sinners cannot stand to be around God. God came, God himself came to earth. And he associated with sinners. He made an effort. That was what the Pharisees contended him for. Well, and, and, I'm, I, and maybe he's thinking the unveiled glory of God. And I'll give him the credit on that. Because, because it is unhealed, unrenewed sinners that can't stand. And I'm going to say, can't stand to be. Not just can't stand. They can't stand to be in his presence. That's why they're not there, because they and their characters hate good. They hate love. They hate truth. And it's torturous to them because their characters love selfishness and deceit. And they can't stand to be in the presence of holiness and purity. This is why they're not there. But healed sinners, healed sinners, when we get to heaven, will it ever be true that you were not a sinner? You will always have been a sinner, but you will be a sinner healed, a sinner reborn, a sinner recreated, a sinner renewed. So sinners will stand in his presence, the healed, the renewed, the redeemed, the recreated. We will stand in his presence. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, in spite of being constantly under Satan's fiercest attack, Jesus never, Jesus lived an unselfish life of loving service. His priority was always centered on other people, not on himself. From childhood to the cross, he showed a constant tender disposition to minister to others. His willing hands were ever ready to relieve every case of suffering he perceived. He lovingly cared for those who were considered by society to be of little value, such as women, children, foreigners, lepers, tax collectors. He did not come to be served, but to serve. Therefore, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. His sympathy and merciful interest for the well-being of others were more important to him than satisfying his own physical need for food or shelter. Indeed, even at the cross, he cared more for his mother than he did about his own suffering. Why, first question, why did Jesus, this is not a trick question, why did Jesus come to serve instead of be served? Because that's what he's like. Because that's what he's like. His father's like. That's what his father's like. And can you extrapolate from that? That's the law of love is like. So where does the whole universe come from? Where does it actually come from? Literally come from. Where does it come from? From God. So if God is like this, and Christ is like this, then the universe functions like this. It's very ba- basic, very straightforward. He came to serve, not to be served, because this is how God constructed everything to operate. It'd be like saying, why do you put gasoline and not water in the tank of your car? Why? Why do you do that? Because that's how it functions. That's the only way it operates. The only way Christ could actually get humanity back in harmony with God's design to succeed at his mission to restore humanity love was to serve and not be served. There was no other direction he could go. Now, he was free to do it the other way, just like you're free to put water in your gas tank, but it won't work that way. Does this make sense? It's the only way it works.
Life is designed to run on love, and thus Christ came to be the conduit of God's infinite love flowing back into the species human. About this idea of for the well-being of others was more important than satisfying his own physical needs, did Jesus ever take time away from the crowds? Leave the crowds? To recover, rest, rejuvenate? Was that an act of selfishness? No, it was living in harmony with the laws upon which life is built to operate. Consider a farmer who has in his heart a passion to help the starving peoples of the world. And he is so compassionate and so desirous to help people uh, that he's going to donate all the food from his farm for free to the peoples of the world. And he's so committed to it, he won't even eat one meal a day for himself. How many does he feed in the end? Nobody. You see? There is a... There is a basic reality of life that you can't serve if you put yourself in a position to be so unhealthy that you need to be served by others. Does a good steward, and we're taught to be stewards of God's gifts to us, does a good steward do regular maintenance on their car to keep it good functioning, on their home, uh, or anything else they want to operate effectively, their computer, their printers at their office, do regular maintenance on these things to, to maintain them so they don't break down? Well, then what a good... Is doing that selfish? No. What about routine maintenance on your body and mind? Do you do routine maintenance on your body and mind to keep it at the optimum peak efficiency? That's what Christ is doing when he takes time away to spend with his Father, to rest, to rejuvenate. He's doing maintenance on his own physical nature that needed sustenance. Does living God's law of love mean we should always give to those who are hungry? The children at the border? No, I'm just asking the question. This idea, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Should we always give to people who are hungry if we love them? Then how do you understand Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if a man will not work, he should not eat? Sounds like we shouldn't give that guy food. If he will not work, but stand by the road with a cardboard sign. He's working against the way things should operate. He's taking, but he's not giving. Ah. Lots of those who are out of harmony with the way of laws of health that are continually hungry. You know what he said? but they're always hungry. You know what Paul did not say here? He said, if a, he did not say, if a man cannot work, he shall not eat. He didn't say that. He didn't say that, did he? No, he said, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. That implies and assumes the man is completely capable of doing so and has opportunity to do so, but just simply refuses to do so. If you love him... Why do you not give him food if you love him? Well, there's such a thing as enabling, too. Uh-oh. You're not helping him by supporting his problem. See, love focuses not merely on the physical, temporal, here and now, but on the eternal, on the character. The physical is a great way to reach people. That's the health message and so forth. But if it stops there, it's actually meaningless. I mean, the healthcare ministries are pointless if they never lead people to understand God's design, character methods, and ultimately bring people back to unity with him. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? What does it profit a man to eat a vegan diet, live 10 extra years, but die eternally? Really, right? Any profit in that? 
Conversely, turn it around. What does a man lose if he, if he dies young, like Stephen, but has eternal life? Last paragraph. It says, every act of mercy, every miracle, every word of Jesus was motivated by his infinite love, an unwavering and permanent love. At the end of his life, he vividly showed his disciples that having loved them from the beginning, he loved them to the end. With his death on the cross, he demonstrated to the entire universe that selfless love triumphs over egoism. In the light of Calvary, it is clear that the principle of self-renouncing love is the only valid foundation of life for earth and heaven. Isn't that well said? Love to see that in the quarterly. I just want to give them you know, props for that. That's great. This love, though, is more than a simple emotion. It is full of emotion, but it's more than emotion. It's also full of understanding, wisdom, comprehension, concern, realism, desire to heal and restore, intent for good and willingness to suffer to do right. This love is much more than an emotion. The bottom green section says, greater love is no one than than this than to lay down his life for his friends. How do you understand what this means in daily practical terms and how does one apply this to their life? So... What does this laying down your life for your friends mean in daily practical terms? How do we think of this? Well, sometimes it's good to get out of your own comfort zone you know, to help somebody. You know, I mean, it doesn't mean necessarily to give your life, but to give part of your life to somebody else. How about, um, you know, do we typically think this means like, well, running in front of a car to save somebody? Or going to the mission field and being stoned or executed by standing for the truth? Is that what we kind of think of this usually? Yeah. Or the time of trouble in the future when the righteous would be persecuted? We, we kind of put, you know, these, are these the kind of ideas that come to mind when we think about this? What about this? What about purposely committing adultery to save somebody? Does that fit here? How about a, a Jewish mother in Nazi Germany who purposely commits adultery with an officer in order to have her child sent out of the country and saved? Is that an act of love? How about if she believes she will be eternally lost? This is sin and she knows it's sin, but she's willing to be eternally lost and have her name written out of the book of life in order to save her child. Is that an act of love? Does that fit here? I'm willing to give my life that somebody else might live. Or do we, we look at that? Nope, nope, that's evil. That is evil. Yeah, that, so this is why Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged, for the same measure you judge others will be judged against you. Why will the same measure be judged against you? Because when you judge another, you're actually revealing your character. And what comes up against us in the judgment is our own self, our actual condition. We either are like Christ in character or we're not like Christ. And if we use an unchristlike judgmental attitude towards others we're revealing, we haven't been renewed in the spirit. That's why it's against us. So exactly right. How about uh, a soldier who kills others rather than going conscientious objector? Anybody heard of Sergeant York? Sergeant York, very religious man from Tennessee. Very, very Bible-based. When he was drafted into the army in World War I, he did not want to carry weapons, and he told his commanders that he did not want to carry weapons because he believed that God's word uh, prohibited the killing and taking of other life. And his commanders worked with him and told him to pray about it and make up his mind. And he went back and spent several weeks in agony and praying and studying his Bible. And he came to the conclusion that for him to take up an, a weapon, he would protect life by protecting 
other people, his soldiers and friends and so forth. And he ended up actually being the most decorated war hero of World War I. Are we to judge him? Did he do wrong? It's a motive of the heart. This is the point. In a sinful world, sometimes there are no clean-cut answers. Rahab. Rahab in the wall of Jericho. What was her primary action that she took that she's known for? Lying. Lying. She hid the spies and lied. Where do we find her in the New Testament? Hall of Faith in Hebrews. Are you understanding that Rahab lied in faith? How can that be? Well, what did she do? Did she choose to side with God and his people or choose to side against God and his people? That was an act of faith. You don't find in Scripture anywhere where God says, well lied, Rahab. You don't find that. What you find is God recognizing her heart was to go to him. I want to be on your side, and I'm going to do what I know. Now, what do I know? How much did Rahab know about God? That he was powerful. That he was powerful. He whipped the Egyptians pretty badly. And they were the most powerful nation on the earth. So she knew he was powerful, and she wanted to be on his side. So she took an act of faith. And uh, get your mind around the kind of faith it took. I want you to imagine today, in the United States, some Taliban terrorists that you know are terrorists. They've already blown up several things in our country, and, they're gonna, and they've got a plot to actually destroy the entire Capitol building, the White House, and wipe out our entire government. That's their plan. And they're hiding in your house, and the, and the, and the TSA and the FBI come to your house looking for them. That was Rahab. Understand, these people were there to kill that entire government. And, and, and if you chose to hide those people and protect them, do you understand what an act of faith that is? That was an act of faith. From their perspective, these were terrorists. Weren't they? Yeah. Monday's lesson, it's love your neighbor. And the question, of course, came up to Christ, who is my neighbor? And Christ answered the question with the story of the Good Samaritan. And so today, the question still remains, who is our neighbor? The lesson answers, if you read the lesson in total, that basically everybody who needs our help is our neighbor. Do you all agree? Everyone who needs our help is our neighbor. See, imagine nodding. Okay, so let me put it out to you then. You're at a restaurant and you see a couple arguing. They clearly need help. Should you go over and offer your help? (laughs) Are they your neighbor? Uh, You're at a grocery store and you see a child having a tantrum, wanting candy, throwing a fit, yelling and screaming. The mother looks completely exasperated, doesn't know what to do. Should you walk over and offer your help? She needs your help. She your neighbor. Should you offer help? Are you guys just going to walk by the, uh, the poor Samaritan beaten along the road there and just leave them? What is wrong with you selfish people? Do you not understand we see people every day who need help and we walk by? Because it would be actually damaging to intervene. Helping doesn't mean helping everybody who needs help. Because there's sometimes if you try to intervene, do you, not, do you understand what happens if you try to intervene in a, in a spousal argument <laughs> when you aren't invited to intervene? <laughs> it doesn't work out well. One of the most dangerous calls for police. It's one, exactly. One of the most dangerous calls for police is when they've actually been called to a domestic violence situation and go into the house Exactly, yes. I heard a story um, where they were interviewing this fellow that just got in Sydney, and uh, he was recounting how people want to jump in and try to, to, to assist, but it actually ends up making things a lot worse if they're trying to help him while the guide dog is there helping him. 
Yes. That's a good, a good analogy to what we're talking about here. So lo- knowing how to help, helping people needs to, needs to be with wisdom. There are times when it's proper to step in and help. There are times when it's much more proper not to help. Or should I say the help is by not doing anything. I'll give you a simple example to start with. A child learning to walk will stumble and fall. The loving parent will, of course, go over if the child's crying and comfort the child. But does the parent set them back down knowing they're going to fall again? Why would they do that? Why don't they help them and just carry them so they won't fall? Because to help them by carrying them would cripple them. This is a metaphor for life. There are plenty of circumstances in life where you could rescue somebody from their circumstance and situation, but to do so would infantilize them or cripple them. It would not give them the opportunity to overcome, problem solve, develop skills, develop their character, or whatever else might be necessary. I'll give you an example. Oh yeah, so, so with that in mind, does helping mean when we help somebody, we give them what they want or give them what they ask for? The goal in helping someone is to help them recover as much of their autonomy, independence, character of Christ, whatever you want to call it, that they're able of, uh, of getting. I had a patient I was consulted to see in a nephrology ward who was in chronic renal failure and was receiving dialysis. She was severely depressed. That's why I was consulted to see her. And she had regressed to the point that she wouldn't even feed herself anymore. She just laid there looking and staring all day. Her family was extremely supportive and attentive to her every need. Therefore... I moved her to the psych ward to do a family ectomy to to remove the family. Within 30 minutes of being in the psych ward, the nurse call light went off, and we went in, and she asked in the most pitiful voice, would you put my glasses on my face? And what would you have done? Would you have put the glasses on her face? Or would you have noticed that she had to reach over her glasses in order to reach the call light to call the nurse? (laughs) Which she did. Her glasses were closer than the call light. What does that tell you? And so we did not put the glasses on her face, nor do anything else that we believe she was capable of doing for herself. And within a week, she was not only feeding herself and taking care of all of her, her own hygiene and activities of daily living, she was up in the kitchen and helping in the kitchen and cleaning the tables and so forth and so on. <laughs> within a week. Yes? I've also heard that if you help a chicken when it's trying to get out of the egg, that it will actually die. I hadn't heard that, but I wouldn't be surprised at that at all. How many read or read the read the book or saw the movie The Miracle Worker? Helen Keller. Anybody know the story? Now, if you saw it, you know that mother loved Helen. Loved Helen very much. Almost to death. <laughs> she said almost to death. <clears throat> Annie Sullivan comes along. Anybody remember how Annie treated her? Who actually treated her? Who had greater emotional tenderness for Annie? Excuse me, for, for Helen. Who had more emotional tenderness in their heart for, for Helen? The mother did. The mother did. Who actually treated her with greater love? Annie did. There's a big lesson here, and I see this a lot in my practice. Emotionalism often interferes with healthy love. Emotionalism often interferes with healthy love because healthy love requires us to do things that don't always feel good. Parents who take their children to get vaccines, 
It doesn't feel good for the kid, and I've never really met a parent who enjoyed it. While they hold the child and they get those needles in their legs. It doesn't feel good all around. But it's protective. It's necessary. Healthy love does what's necessary. Disciplining a child. How many of you really enjoyed the moments of discipline? Was that the funnest times of your experience when you were growing up as a kid or as a parent raising your child? Was that the best times? No. But was it maybe the times when love was demonstrated most clearly? Yeah. Helping does not mean we do what others want, but what is actually within, with, what's actually for their best interest, within the boundaries and lines of authority and responsibility that is appropriate in that relationship. So I know as healthcare providers, we walk around the community and we frequently see things that people do that are not helpful to them. And we have knowledge that say, well, they, they really need to know this. This could help them. Is it proper for us to start walking up on the street and educating people on their health problems? No. It would be in, injurious to do those things. It's not, it's not healthy to do that. So we don't help people who aren't, aren't actually open to be helped. Tuesday's lesson, the lesson asks us to read Matthew 25, 31 through 46. I'm going to read that from my paraphrase. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his unveiled fiery glory, all his angels will be with him, and he will sit upon his throne in heavenly splendor. All humanity will come before him, and he will separate the healed, those who have partaken the remedy, from the unhealed, as easily as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the healed on his right and his unhealed on his left. Then the king will gladly say to those on his right, Come home, you who have been healed by my father. Receive your inheritance, the kingdom of love, designed for you at the creation of the world. For you lived in harmony with my kingdom of love. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me home. I didn't have clothing and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the healed, whose hearts are right with God's kingdom of love, will answer the king and say, Lord, what are you talking about? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When were you a stranger to us with, or without clothes that we needed to clothe you? When did we ever nurse you when sick or visit you in prison? The king will smile and say, the truth of my kingdom of love is this. Whatever love you gave to the least of my family on earth, you gave to me. Then the king will say to the unhealed, those on his left, whose hearts remain embittered with fear and selfishness, depart from me, you who are terminal, doomed by your condition, to go into eternal fire prepared to consume the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you let me starve. I was thirsty, and you let me thirst. I was a stranger, and you left me on the street. I needed clothes, and you gave me none. I was sick, and you let me suffer. I was in prison, and you let me be abused. They will be shocked and protest, Lord, it isn't so. We never mistreated you. When did we fail to feed you or give you drink or invite you home or provide you clothing or nurse you when sick or help you in prison? The king will reply, the truth of my kingdom of love is this. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of my earthly family, you did not do for me. Then they will pass away for all eternity, but the healed, those whose hearts are right, will receive eternal life. Why is it that when we love any human, we love Jesus? Why is it? I want you to see functionally. Why? Structurally. Constructurally. Why is it? How does Jesus' kingdom work? It's why it's compared to the river of life. 
God gives to you so that you can give to others. And the fact that you, if you damn that up or try to keep it all for yourself, you aren't uh, demonstrating that you are a part of the river of life. And therefore, anybody that you see that needs that river, you're going to pass it on if you're part of God's character. That's talking about you. The question is, how is it that when you do that, you're actually giving love to Jesus? You're actually loving Jesus. I'm with you. Just take it to the next step. You're on this side of the equation. Go to the other side of the equation. Let's see if this helps you. This is how the book Desire of Ages, page 21. See if this connects the dots for you. But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking into Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. The, look at that, the glory, which is not his character, to give. I do nothing of myself, said Jesus. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him who sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things Christ received from the Father, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son, it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit, circle, circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. Tell me, tell me what you understand that to mean. Get your mind around this. Wrestle with this construction, protocol, design, how things are built. How is it operating? Somebody tell me. What do you hear? I see the cycle of rain. The rain falls, gets left to the ground, and then it evaporates and goes back up into the heavens and hits one continual loop cycle. Excellent. That's exactly in nature. Now let's take and apply that to loving other people is loving Jesus. How does that work? If you love me, you'll follow my commandments. I love my mother, so I respect her. But she also provides me a place to live. So it's it's not that you owe them something, but because you love them, you want to give back. And because they love you, they will give to you. So, so love, you're describing a principle, love awakens Love. That's how love is awakened. We did did not love him first. He loved us first. For God so loved the world. The kindness or goodness of God leads us to repentance. So there's a principle you're describing. As we love others, we awaken love in their heart. That's important. What you said earlier about the the water and or the uh, the love that opens the the heart. That's that's part of it as well. Yes. It's just like the rain. It's just the same thing. It comes from God. Goes to us. We love others, and then. That cycle continues. They realize that love comes from God, and he goes... <laughs> so consider the garden hose on your home, the garden hose on your house, and the fire hydrant in front of your house. Both of them are connected to a municipal source of water. If you open up them both full blast, which gives away more water? Which has more water spewing from it? Which is receiving more water to it? I didn't hear you. The more you give, the more you receive. And that water eventually, as you're saying water, eventually flows back to the ocean and the circle completes. So in our metaphor, God is the source. 
the more love we give, the more we receive. And as we give to others, if you notice how the circuit works, it flows from us to others and others back to Christ to God again. It's a circle of love. It never stops flowing, except as we harden our hearts and close it down. And so the more we love others, the more of that love flows back to God again in praise and adoration, as we read here. And the more that we love others and get their hearts to awaken in love, then their praise and adoration flows back to God and more love flows back to him. And it keeps going like this. Love awakens love. Have you noticed this in your human relationships? That the more you love people, that that love flows back to you again as well. This is God's design for life. It's really beautiful if you get your... It's functional. It's not mystical. It's not magical. It's not supernatural, divine fiat that if you do this, then God will then you know, flip a switch at your account in heaven and boom, something magic happens for you. No, it's not like that. Wednesday's lesson. What does it mean to love your enemies? What does it mean to love your enemies? Before we go. Yes. On Tuesday's lesson, in that same verse, it talks about those who actually um, did miracles and provided things and whatnot. And so they participated in the circle of love without being part of the circle of love. Oh, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name? Get ye, hence ye, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. He said, he said you can participate in the system without being part of the system. You know, I, you know, I wonder about that. I wanna, let, 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 this is a good point, Wendell. Very good point. Well, you want to flush it out some more? They, they honored... Well, God was honored by the end result of their work. But they themselves did not partake of that work. See, you know, I I could see it that way. I could see it that way. I could also see it, though, that this would be like, you know, Jannies and Jambres throwing down their serpent, their rods and turning them to serpents. That there's a lot that people do in the name. We did this in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all these things in your name. But it really wasn't in his name because it wasn't in his character. They were distorting his character. They were representing God to be punitive and legalistic and all this ugly stuff. So while they were using the words Jesus and presenting, Christi- and presenting that this is Christianity... They really weren't represented. I could argue it that way too. Well, form of godliness, but deny the power thereof that Paul talks about. Well, Mrs. Yeah. White talks about a time when a person was healed that probably shouldn't have been healed, and she never did it again because it was revealed to her that that was probably not the best thing. Yes, and, and why? And why did it happen? Do you remember the story of why and the answer why why that person was healed? God's name was praised. Because Ellen White called on God's name to praise, and she was being held up as his messenger, and if he didn't act in her behalf at that point, they would lose confidence in the message that she brought. So he, she, he, God felt that, he, that his purpose for her ministry be undermined and because she didn't trust him to, to allow him to make the decision. And that's why she never did it before. But that's not someone in this setting well, that, that was performing miracles in his name. Ellen White was actually working in God's okay, character. But, but the person who is receiving the miracle from the false prophet does not reveal does not know the heart of the false prophet he is see, he is perceiving god's goodness and so god may work through people who are not I, I see this both ways i really do i can see we can see circumstances where god speaks through a donkey yeah yes so there are people out there that have no more knowledge of god than a donkey Right. And God can work through them. However, 
We also know that there's an angel of light coming who's going to pretend to be Christ or claim to be Christ and perform miracles of all kinds and is going to deceive many with those miracles as well. So I see both sides of it. I see the issue is not about the miracles. I see the And so I'm going to suggest the idea that if you aren't working in harmony with his character, you're not working in harmony with him, even though you're using his name. That's, I'm going to suggest that idea. Do you, what do you think about that? I think that's true. But, you know, Other people may perceive you working in harmony with them, but you're really not working in harmony with them. Right. Yeah, that, that would be the, the, the sheep and the, and the goats working, or the wheat and the tares growing up together. Yeah, that's a good point. Yes. And, and people may even come to a knowledge of God from this miracle, <laughs> but the person who was performing it may, like you say, may have their heart hardened, perhaps ultimately, and, and not be at that same that same point where they need to be. Ultimately. Yeah, and I see a lot of miracle ministries that are going on in the world today, right now, in the name of Jesus, really not bringing people to an enlightenment of his character. Do you see that too? Yeah. Uh, yes? I was just going to point out that, like you said, the, um, Satan can do miracles also. Because my grandmother, she was blind, and she went to this miracle worker or whatever and got healed, and she received her sight after decades of not seeing anything. And she went to bed that night, she prayed, Father, this is not from your throne. I'd rather be blind. And she woke up blind. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so why do we forgive those who mistreat us? We're talking about how we love our enemies. We've got just a couple of minutes left. I want to hit this point. I want you to understand how sin is transmitted, the pathology and vir- virulence of evil. When someone does wrong to you, a seed is planted in your heart that if it takes root and grows, will grow into resentment, bitterness, hatred, vengefulness, anger, and if not rooted out, will harden your heart and you will become like the person who did evil to you. That's what happens. I had a patient who came to see me and I asked, why are you here? My wife said, if I don't see somebody, she's leaving me. Well, what happened? Several years before, his sister, who had an alcohol drug problem, came in town, spent a couple days there, got him drunk one night while he passed out. She stole his coin collection that he'd been collecting since childhood, left town, sold the coins for drugs, and, um, of course, he was embittered. He was, he was done wrong. He was sinned against. He was exploited. He stayed, but he was re- angry. He was resentful. He was bitter. He would not forgive his sister. And because he would not forget her, forgive her, he kept ruminating on this, and he became angry and more resentful. And then he became distrustful of others, and he saw threats and, and, and potential exploitation where he never saw it before. And, his, and he was becoming so mean-spirited, his wife said, if you don't get some help, I'm leaving you. This is why God has given us a tool, when people do us wrong, to root that out of our own heart, and that tool is forgiveness. We forgive others, and when we forgive others, who gets changed by that act? We do. It's primarily something happening in our hearts. We're the ones transformed by that. Our forgiveness, well, Christ on the cross, forgiving the people who put him there, reveals that he does not let evil take root in his heart. But it didn't change them. It could have. They could have responded, but they didn't. It was primarily, so how we keep ourselves in harmony with God's design is, and, and we stop actually the spread of evil. The spread of evil is, is, is interrupted by forgiving others. And I want you to understand that pathology. Does that mean, though, if you forgive somebody, you can trust them? Don't confuse the two. 
Just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean they're trustworthy. We only trust those who are trustworthy. If you trust the untrustworthy, you collude with a lie because they're not trustworthy and you act as if they are, and that only adds to danger and, and injury. So we don't trust them, but we can still forgive them. Yes, closing comment. But just saying, I forgive you, does not necessarily mean that you really do forgive the person. Oh, how do you do it? Th- thanks for saying that because did I actually say anything about saying anything? No, I'm not talking about communicating to the person. I'm not talking about speaking out loud. I'm actually talking about a change in heart attitude where you no longer have a desire for vengeance against them. You actually have an attitude to see them redeemed, changed, transformed to be your friend. So it takes much prayer on your part. You have to have this. This is a gift from God. You say, God, I'm angry and I'm resentful, but I don't want to be. I want to have a forgiving heart. Help me have a heart to forgive them. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth about how your kingdom works, how you've constructed this universe to operate in harmony with your character of love. We ask that your spirit will be poured out to write your law of love into our hearts and minds, transform us to be like you. Give us wisdom and discernment to see through the distortions that are so deeply rooted in so much of tradition that we can be part of the remnant people who really give the testimony of Jesus, the truth about who you are. We pray in your holy name. Amen.